Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps. I'm speaking to you from sunny Austin, Texas. I'm here with the gang. Say hi, gang. Hey, gang. Hello. Um, This is going to be a really fun episode in which we talk about sin. Um, We're going to talk about sin in a whole bunch of different ways, uh, use a bunch of different distinctions and stuff. Um, But before we get into that cheery and delightful topic, we have a bit of frivolity. Uh, And the frivolity occurred to me on the way over to my office where I record. Uh, So my question for each of you is, what is uh, a, a piece of pop culture guilty pleasure that you indulge in? Can we parse that question a little bit, John? Yeah, so, so one of my least favorite things when people ask, you know, what's, what's a guilty pleasure you have is when people say, oh, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. Um, <laughs> that seems to me nakedly self-indulgent, and I won't tolerate it. Um, so I think it, it really does have to be something that uh, you, you genuinely enjoy, uh, but either intellectually or socially, you feel some embarrassment about your enjoyment. Okay. I'll, I'll assent to that definition. Okay. So I was hoping we could argue about it a little more. But. <laughs> it, it, just, it seems to me that like on the one level, either it's, uh, I like this thing, but the like common consensus is that it's bad. Or it can be like, look, I know this isn't good, but I still enjoy it. So who wants to go first? I mean, I mean I'll take the hit. Do it. Uh, mine is um, definitely Hallmark Christmas movies. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I, I just can't get enough of that shit, guys. Like, November <laughs> rolls around. And, and, of course, like, because I'm in Canada and we don't have cable or anything like that, um, I just find whatever happens to be on YouTube. Um, <laughs> oh, man. I was sort of hoping there was a collection of VHSs <laughs> with, like, degraded uh like tv rips of uh hallmark movies but that's i mean I, w- I wish that was that were the case but no i just find them on youtube and actually sometimes like the ones on youtube have like ads in them mostly they don't um a lot of them are like mirror image for some reason like i oh. i don't know why but um and a lot of them, there's this thing where like people upload hallmark movies but they really want them to get watched so they keep labeling them as like like 20 like there'll they'll be a whole slew that are labeled as like new 2018 hallmark christmas movie but it's really like a princess for christmas which came out in like i don't know 2011 maybe so um you know all this like and netflix is kind of getting in on it like they're starting to pop up on netflix anyways i have devoted like so much to this that i developed a really in-depth drinking game uh so before we get into the drinking game I, i'm just curious What's the plot of A Princess for Christmas? <laughs> like specifically A Princess for Christmas? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So uh, there's this girl who lives in Boston. Uh, I guess I should say woman. Young woman who lives in Boston. And she is the like uh, guardian and caregiver for her three uh, nibblings. And because her sister and brother-in-law died, I think in a car crash. But her can, brother-in-law. Can you clarify the term nibblings? Yeah, nibblings is the gender neutral for nieces and nephews. It's like I, siblings for sisters oh, and brothers. I am not as woke as I thought I was. And I learned something today. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's only like, I think it's a no- neologism that stems from like the 40s or 50s. And then 
was really common and then kind of fell out of um, use. But I'm bringing it back, guys, because it's so useful. So anyway, off of our our third order tangent and back to our second order tangent. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sorry, okay. sorry. So, okay. Um, anyways, it turns out her brother-in-law was a prince, the son of a duke, but I think through his mother's side ends up being a prince, and but was disinherited why, why when, he, <laughs> when he married the main character's sister. Okay, and so they they just lived in the U.S. Anyways, they died. Um, and then one day, um, maybe like I think Percy Merriweather, maybe the head butler from this palace, um, uh, shows up and basically is like, "The Duke wants all of you guys to come for Christmas," because the the father of the brother-in-law is a, a duke, anyways, because he's a prince through his bum side. So she's in all sorts of financial troubles because you know um, she doesn't have. I think she's like, she works in an antique shop and now she has these three kids she has to look after all the time. So they end up deciding to go. Um, and long story short, there's lots of like shenanigans and like snowballs and like interactions with like the locals and like uh, faux pas. But everyone is just really like won over by her like kind of easy breezy personality. Doesn't have time for like, ooh, stuck up like jodhpurs on my little horse thing. Um, and it turns out that the... <laughs> Dead Prince has a brother. Um, I, I regret this question yeah, what, so much. What have you done, John? I, I apologize. And they fall in love, and but this time it's okay. They don't co-hosts. Get I apologize to my listeners. I apologize to. We their, don't have any of them anymore. I, I apologize to their goldfish. Uh, don't forget God. God, I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, God. <laughs> Anyways, and they live heavily ever after. The really fun part about A Princess for Christmas is the, like, kind of nobody actor who's in it is um, Sam Hewen, who's now, like, kind of big and famous from being on Outlander. Oh, okay. I think I was going to say, wouldn't that be, like, Canada famous? Hey, well, Outlander you, is a... You, I, I would say UK famous and then yeah. Canada by extension because we get yeah. a ton of UK media here, too. True. Anyways, long story short, the really fun part is I'm pretty sure Hallmark has purchased a castle because the same castle keeps popping up in movie after movie after movie. I can, Maybe I can, they have a punch card? I can quite yeah, uh, confidently tell you that there have been several of those Hallmark movies filmed in East Aurora, New York, mm-hmm. which is where my place of work is. Oh, yeah. I cruise that Main Street being like, I know those buildings. And the rest of them are filmed in Vancouver, where I used to live. So that's really fun because I'm like, oh, I know that place. Or like, oh, that, that, you know, that's my climbing wall or whatever happens to be. Anyways, long story short, they also recycle tons of their set pieces. So anyways. And and plots, I'm going to guess. Hey, hey Brian, do you have a guilty pleasure pop culture thing? Wait, 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 wait. There was a drinking game that I set. You're right. I I don't even know who I am anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. I'll give you some hints from the drinking game. So you have to take one drink. If there's things like mention of the past, present, or future, any Santa, any carolers, any folksy wisdom, car accidents, dead parents, mugs of holiday drinks, you have to take an extra drink. If the character picks up the drink, holds it, Puts it down, but doesn't drink it. They quote a Bible vor- vor- verse, but usually without any reference to God. Uh, the, the small town is Christmas-themed. The character's name is Christmas-themed. Um, repeated set dressings. I was, I was going to have more drinks for that, but there's so many repeated set pieces that I was worried about my liver. Um, the, ma- the main character makes friend with a diner owner. 
that's actually so often it became part. You have to take two drinks. If anyone mentions the spirit of Christmas, the meaning of Christmas, Christmas faith, or Christmas magic, any spoken line that could plausibly be from the inside of a Hallmark card. Um, and you have to drink your entire drink if the main character gets engaged in less than three days, one or more people move from the big city to a small town, or the main character becomes a prince or a princess. So my, my concern with this, the, the alcohol this poisoning, is that your say, it's for Robin's safety. That's my primary <laughs> concern. My secondary concern is that I'm not sure it's, how do you, I, I don't want to know the answer to this, but, but how does one remember all these rules more than nine minutes into a Hallmark movie? <laughs> It seems to me that's a physical impossibility. I mean, it takes a lot of practice, guys. Like I, <laughs> I've, been, I've been working at this. All right. Well, that was disturbing. Thank you, Robin. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, you said guilty pleasure, okay? Well, yeah, and now I little. feel guilty. I don't just, I, I feel dirty. Yeah. I feel I, dirty. Other yeah. people yeah. aren't into it, and I'm embarrassed. Actually, no, I'm not embarrassed about it. Oh, sorry, you're not sorry. Yeah, exactly. Sullied and unusual. That's how I feel. Hmm. Wow, okay. I don't talk about this often, and I was a little nervous to talk about it. Uh, but now, now I'm. Now that I've embarrassed yeah, myself so much, you feel like. The ice hasn't just been broken. It's been. There is no more ice. Um, so, uh, yeah, mine, my, my guilty pleasure, which is, this is a fact, started when I would have been, I think, seven or eight. Uh, the first CD I ever bought with my own money or for myself was the Backstreet Boys. Nice. And I, uh, Robin's face is hilarious right now. <laughs> She's very excited. Um, Wait, the, which one? The, Millennium? Uh, no, it was the one before that. I think it's just self-titled, if I'm not mistaken. It's the one where they're, they're leaning against the wall, all looking very of the moment. Um, yeah. I'm, and I'm I, sure it's just on your shelf behind you there, Brian. You just pull uh, it off there. No, alas, I, I I have a bunch of vinyl over there, but none of it is Backstreet Boys related. I should buy that. Would be good. Um, you should buy I, Millennium on on vinyl. That's worth it. I it's so it's funny. Whenever anyone ironically puts on any boy band song on like a party playlist or something, I know all the words and all the harmonies because I pretty darn unironically love the 90s boy band music especially the Backstreet Boys because they were far and away the best singers uh I love me some JT but NSYNC is not as comparably talented and yeah I uh the I when I do karaoke which is rarer than it should be I like doing karaoke very much I will always do I want it that way because uh not only is it fun to sing but I forget how bad the lyrics are to that song uh because if I'm not mistaken it is a translation of original, I think it's Japanese lyrics, which apparently make sense in their original form, but are completely incoherent in the Backstreet Boys version. I doubt yeah. it. Have you listened to Japanese pop music? Like, I, yeah, I, I don't. And they like, yeah. No, like, no, uh, I haven't. <laughs> right. Um, but I've listened to a little bit of uh, Japanese hip hop, which is pretty fun. Yeah, uh, man, they go in. The um that would be a good future guest question is what's your go to karaoke song? That is a very good question. I like. I may question. I may use that when I don't have one next time that okay, I'm supposed to. Yeah. All right, Ryan, guilty pleasure. Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> one, I mean, with 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 the precedents we have in hand, I mean, one could go in in uh, any number of directions, but. Uh, 
I don't know. Uh, lately, I've, I've uh, probably in the last, I don't know, maybe two years since, uh, since the, the um, Disney's hostile takeover of Lucasfilm, um, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've gotten sort of real deep back into fanboyhood um, in like an arguing on the internet with Star Wars YouTubers kind of way. Wow. Dope. Which, you know, is some, something of a surprise for my early 30s. I didn't think that was the direction life was going was gonna to go. But, uh, but that's the direction it, in fact, has taken. So uh, I've, I've, I've got it under a control a little more now. Uh, but, you know, there was a, there was a solid year there where uh, I was spending an alarming amount of time uh, engaged in, in such activities. Did you, ever, did you ever play the Star Wars um, strategy card game, the sort of analog to Magic the Gathering? No. Yeah, that was a whole thing. So now, sorry about that. Sorry, Kate. Uh, that's a thing you should check out. It's pretty, <laughs> sorry, it's pretty silly. My, I, uh, my love of Star Wars is matched only by my hatred of games, card oh, games okay. in particular. So uh, I think she's probably safe from uh, that. Does that extend to like Trivial Pursuit? Because there is a Star Wars Trivial Pursuit. Well, that would be just uh, a delightful evening um i'll collect those pie pieces all day long i'm just not going to play cards gotcha uh this this was occasioned i don't have it have to think about it more to know i have a lot of these kind of things but um the the question was occasioned on the way over because i was picking what music to listen to on my drive uh and i've i've been revisiting some music i listened to a lot when i was in college and so i've been listening to a lot of chevelle driving back and forth between austin and san antonio and uh for whatever algorithm reason, iTunes recommended Evanescence's first album, uh, which uh, to which I said, sure. And I listened to four or five songs on the way over and I thought, yeah, I enjoy this. This is, these songs are not good, uh, but I sure like this. Um, and I noticed that their, their big single, um, the name of which I can't remember now. Wake me up. Yeah, that, that one. That, please never do that again. Um, that, has a has a, a delightfully Athanasian soteriology to it, though. So I was I felt a little better. Um, there's a lot of discussion of like <laughs> called the projection, John. The nothingness yeah. inside me, well, and you know. Next next week's discussion can be what kind of like high level justification do you use? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I made a long I made a long Twitter thread uh, a few maybe a month and a half ago about uh, the like psychology of being a former youth group kid that's manifest in a song Paramore wrote for one of the Transformers soundtracks. So I am not above this kind of thing. Um, I like Paramore. Their new album is amazing. Y'all should go listen to it. Haley Williams, she's got some pipes. And so does, I I don't remember the woman who is the lead of Evanescence, but she can sing as well. Amy something? Tell us on Twitter. Uh, Okay, we spent a lot of time on that. Yeah, that was, I'm looking at the stopwatch like, oh wow, that was a lot of guilt. Yeah, we, that's because John just needed pleasure. to know the plot of a princess for Christmas. Well, you know, um, guilt is a good segue, though. So. Guilt yeah, is a good segue. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't usually try to segue, but there we go. Man. So Brian, thanks, uh, Hallmark. Yeah, right. Um, Brian is going to frame our discussion of sin because he's been thinking about it for one of the classes he's teaching. So I'm going to hand good. it over to him. So, uh, hey, Brian, sin. I oh oh I will. Um, <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't an exhortation. 
Um, okay. Uh, so yeah, as John mentioned, and as I, I've mentioned uh, in reference to my Treasures Old and New when we were at Lonergan on the Edge, I am teaching for the first time a Creation and Grace course this semester. And because it's a new prep, it has been occupying a very large amount of my time. And I have been thinking about things that either I've never done a ton of research on or haven't really thought about in a while. And so although I am, I'm definitely not primarily focused in my own research on sin uh, or Thomistic distinctions, I have been deep diving into ways that I might be able to more explanatorily unpack the discussion of sin, evil, fallenness, etc. in my creation and grace class. And so it occurred to me when we were thinking about topics for episodes that it might be helpful to uh, just to bring maybe a little more clarity to the conversation because terms like original sin are used or disparaged with, uh, with a ton of regularity. But very often I feel like conversations about topics like that involve people talking past each other where uh, we're talking about different things. So the common framing device that I found in the literature that I think is most explanatory relative to the discussion of sin is almost always original justice. Creation is good. Creation is, uh, it's, it's all good at the beginning. In, in Genesis, I, I actually went on to Bible Gateway to check. Uh, in Genesis 1, the word, the word good is used seven times in reference to creation. Yet, uh, somehow things go very, very badly. Prior to that going badly, the traditional terminology for talking about the state that human beings are in is a state of re- original justice. Uh, which is an inherently relational term. Humanity is in right relation to God uh, uh, at the beginning. And then, as we all know, there's a, there's a snake and things go poorly. And in that uh, mythopoetic origin story, uh, sin enters in the world through a disproportionate warping of relationality vis-a-vis God, between God and humanity, and consequently between human beings. Uh, Augustine in, uh, I believe it's 14 of City of God, uh, refers to sin as love of oneself, even to the contempt of God. And we very often in conversations that I've had, at least relative to the sin of pride that, that is associated with the fall and with Adam and Eve, I think we, we forget to emphasize this. Uh, the sin of pride is a sin that's disproportionate to humanity's created nature uh, because it's rooted in an inauthentic relationality. Uh, it's, it's disproportionate to the relationship uh, of creature, uh, the, rather the, the nature that is createdness. Uh, the, the real distinction between creature and creator isn't something that Adam and Eve are proportionately adverting to in their uh, attempt to be like that is equal to God. And so the first sin of the first human beings is a choice not to accept their limitations proportionate to their uh, creatureliness. I I mentioned in my Treasures Old and New book, or when I was talking about my Treasures Old and New, it was my new treasure, the Ratzinger's in the beginning. He does a really good job of unpacking this in a way that sounds very much like another author who is not Joseph Ratzinger, but I'm going to quote it. Uh, So when they try this, when they try to be like God, 
everything is thrown topsy-turvy, which I'd love to see what the German is for that. Uh, the, the relationship of human beings to themselves is altered as well as their relationship to others. The other is a hindrance, a rival, a threat to the person who wants to be God, end quote. Uh, this, this language, when I read it in preparation for the class, struck me as being uh, shockingly Girardian coming from uh, Joseph Ratzinger. And so I was, uh, when I presented sin in my class, given my own interests in relationality and the, the degree to which all humanity is inherently relational, human nature is inherently relational, I leaned into this. And I was in good company because a lot of different people do it. Bob Doran, uh, Grant Kaplan, James Allison have all unpacked the discussion of the first sin. Uh, so Adam's originating original sin and uh, the consequences, uh, so originated original sin, the marring of human nature by way of the privation that is sin, uh, in terms of Girardian mimetic theory, in terms of inauthentic, acquisitive imitation. And the actual sins that human beings commit on a daily basis only make things worse. and. Uh, complicate the way that our nature is inherently, it's, it's thrown topsy-turvy, to use uh, Ratzinger's terminology, by the virus that is this sort of disordered acquisitive mimetic tendency. Uh, so I personally didn't commit Adam's sin. Uh, I wasn't alive when the first members of the species Homo sapiens sapiens uh, were walking the earth. Uh, but I'm still feeling the consequences of this sin today. Uh, I'm infected with its consequences. Uh, yeah, I'm infected with a tendency towards what Bob Dorn will call a, a radical ontological sickness, a warping of my own natural orientation towards God, uh, my unrestricted desire for uh, unrestricted goodness, beauty, truth, intelligibility, uh, intelligence, my, my orientation towards God in and of God's self, and uh, ultimately my ho hopeful orientation towards the beatific vision uh, is warped by this virus. And so I'm, I'm sick. And when I sin actually, so when I go out into the, into the world and uh, I make fun of people who like Hallmark movies, or I, uh, I, I, I play the drinking game a little too hard uh, while watching the Hallmark movies. I only exacerbate this state. My own being damaged by original sin is uh, exemplified and only pushed further by actual sin, uh, by my acts of willing in the world to not choose the good that is God and choosing instead to mock Robin for her guilty pleasure of Hallmark movies or to uh, do any number of other very mean things that are disproportionate to the good and therefore disproportionate to what I'm in inherently ordered to be. Uh, I've been, when I've been thinking about this, as you can probably tell listeners, uh, given the way I tend to think, I, I associate a whole lot of seemingly unrelated things with one another. And I've found that going through and reading, say, for example, uh, question 48 of the Prima Pars, 
the distinctions that someone like Aquinas makes for uh, unpacking how evil hurts us is extremely useful. So uh, the next distinction that I've been uh, employing in my ability to talk to students about something like sin or evil is a distinction that Thomas makes and that Lonergan ends up picking up and terminologically transposing. And that distinction is uh, between what Thomas will call malum culpe and malum pene. Uh, so there are different ways of translating this. Uh, the usual way is malum culpe is the evil of fault, which is uh, a deprivation basically flowing from within the will. Uh, an inherent rejection of that towards which we are ordered, which is the good. And those, those evils, uh, those evils of fault have consequences. And so the language that's often used for this is evil of punishment, uh, malum pene. And that would be a deprivation resulting from malum culpe, uh, and which has consequences upon us. Uh, the, the language that Lonergan uses is, heightening tensions within the subject or within the subject's social milieu, uh, basically making life more difficult for everyone. Lonergan, in chapter 19 of Insight, uh, when he's doing sort of a theotic portion of his discussion of natural theology and uh, general transcendence, will use the terms basic sin and moral evil to talk about malum culpe and malum pene. And Robin has, I know, written, and she's probably spent more time thinking about that distinction than all of us put together. Uh, she wrote a very good paper a few years back, complicating sort of the way that transposition works. So and Robin, if you want to riff on that in a little bit, that might be good. Uh, I could, but right now I just want to say, I've always really liked um, the way Brian Davies talks mm -hmm. about malum pene and malum culpe. I found it quite um, how he translates them, but in, in, well, and he's talking about de malo, right? Not, not mm -hmm. the prima ours, but he kind of, so malum pene, um, he says like by malum pene, Aquinas is referring to what later writers might sometimes call like pain, sickness, injury, the like. So evil suffered essentially is how he does malum pene. And by malum culpe, he says Aquinas is referring to moral evil or evil in human action. So what might be called evil done. So evil done yeah. and evil suffered is how he translates them. So activity versus passivity is sort of the framing device. Essentially, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the, the Thomas scholars in the room can quibble with whether or not Brian Davies is right about it. But um, I always found that I always... I. I, I liked that translation. I found it to be quite useful. Yeah. Um, I, I can't speak to whether it's a good, uh, it's, it's good translation or, or exegesis of, of Thomas, precisely speaking. But um, one of the tricky things, it seems to me, uh, when retrieving these medieval categories in our uh, situation is that they have to sort of traverse modern uh, moral and ethical thinking. And so, um, <clears throat> I, I, I tend to be more, uh, e e I would be more precise than Davies on that point, mm -hmm. uh, particularly about Malum Culpe, uh, that, that Malum Culpe really specifically has to do with, um, an act of the will. Yeah. And now, now that, that brings to mind a sort of, um, 
a sort of Kantian commitment to the idea that the only thing that's really morally good is the goodwill. Um, and I, I wouldn't want a, a, an overly Kantian read of this. Um, but, it, but it seems to me that, that basic sin or malum culpe is really about a decision. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's about an act of consciousness that is, uh, or an act of the soul, if you want to use a sort of um, an older idiom, that, uh, that is the sort of originating principle of malampene, um, of, of be, it's an agent, right? It's a, it's a, it's a cause. It's something which produces effects. And because the principle or the agent or the cause is bad, it produces bad effects, malampene. Um, and so, and so while evil suffered is, is, is all right, I wouldn't want to get the idea that, um, evil suffered is, is something that is, uh, only sort of the effects of bad decisions on, pe- on, on a sort of other innocent people, mm-hmm. right? But that, um, that the person who makes a morally bad decision and acts on it also suffers the, con- the, the consequences. Yeah. Right? Well, but the distinction I- sort of doesn't, doesn't work unless you, you work it out in those, in those terms. Um, and so that, and part of the reason I want to, I want to get on it in terms of Kant is that um, those are, those are inextricable. That the, that Malampene proceeds from Malum Culpe. Yeah. Um, but- in a way that you can't, in a Kantian way, sort of divide into sort of deontological ethics versus consequentialist ethics. And that's how Thomas opens the discussion. Well, I mean, after he does his, like, objections part in um, question 48 of the Prima Pars, right? He says that an act is twofold. Right. So his entire thinking about malum culpe and malum pene stems from the fact, like, an act is twofold. Um, there's kind of that, that, that evil done, that act of the will, and then essentially. I mean, it's just simplifying a bit the consequences that arise from it that are not just for other people, but for yourself. But, but that's, that's, you know, it stems from what an act is for Thomas. Um, and, and that's why just as an act is twofold, then a sinful act essentially is. And, and so I'm also sort of um, trying to hedge against an overly materialist reading of what action is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? That, the, that we tend to think of the action as the thing which occurs in a sort of spatially extended, temporally extended um, physical milieu, um, yeah. but Whereas, but the human action qua human uh, originates in a, an act of consciousness. Well, I think, and, and what Thomas says, right, is like the first act is um, like form and integrity of a thing, and the second act is its operation. So malampene is the operation, right? Um, and malumculpe is the form and integrity of a thing, essentially. I mean, that's how that's how he puts it in. In question 48, De Malo's a little bit different. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry, Brian, I just wanted to say like... No, that, that's, like, that's helpful. Um, I think actually John's clarification is also very helpful for, um, for integrating. There, there's a tendency, I think, among some, actually myself included, I, with distinctions like this, to uh, when when reading or hearing about distinctions like this, to sort of roll roll our eyes and go, what does this actually buy us? This this is splitting hairs for no reason. I don't see the difference. But an anthropology or an ethics, which results from an anthropology that compartmentalizes 
the 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 intentional warping of the will uh, in turning away from the good and uh on the other hand those effects that result from that both for the subject who chooses to turn away from the good uh or those connected in any number of different uh, identifiable or unthematized ways to that person uh, is is going to be an inherently impoverished anthropology or an uh, inherently anthrop- uh, impoverished ethics and i think that the key is actually integrating all of these things in such a way that we recognize being good little, uh, I guess, either virtue ethicists or existentialists, uh, that the the things we do matter. They have consequences uh, that aren't just for a particular action in a particular moment, but ripple outwards. And the the thing that I've found really interesting in thinking about this topic is the juridical language can be that can be off putting to somebody, and so the uh, as as John put it, when we're talking about terms like uh, punishment, it's it's impossible not to not to have to reconsider the use of terms like that within a contemporary ethical uh, milieu. But when we start talking about what Thomas is really interested in, he he's actually interested in covering uh, the full range of absurdity that enters into the question with sin. Uh, Sin is inherently absurd. Evil is inherently absurd. And absurdity begets further absurdity in the same way that uh, a a virus leeches onto uh, a healthy cell and spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. Uh, I, and I I just drastically oversimplified biology, but that's, uh, that's fine. I appreciate the the clarification relative to the melon colpe melon pene distinction because it's meant to do more than it's often I think understood as doing. Right, and and people talk about that a lot. And I was just thinking what you were saying about the certainty of sin is that Thomas actually has something that comes that's kind of prior to melon pene and melon colpe, right? Mm-hmm. So he he'll talk about. Um, uh, a defect or deficient cause of evil. So, you know, like he says, like, you know, the defect which is presupposed in the will before sin is neither a fault nor a punishment, but a pure negation. But it takes on the nature of fault from the fact that with such a negation, it applies itself to a work. So basically, when you bring this deficiency forward into the will, then it becomes a fault. But but this deficiency is or defect is actually prior. So that allows him to talk about sin as privation, but sp- still explain why it has such a, a power in the will and such a pervasiveness and such a kind of cancerous nature, right? Because I think a lot of people think if evil's a privation, it has no evil seem like people object to evil as privation because evil seems to have such a pervasive force. Yeah, it sounds like a cop out to say it's a privation. <laughs> right, exactly. And yeah. so Thomas, but Thomas, for Thomas, this is necessary because um this defect, which actually he talks about even being prior to privation, basically, because if such a defect were some sort of privation of do good, right, um, it would already be a type of sin. 
And so it would be culpable. So then it would be like saying, well, the cause of sin is sin. Um, so he has this prior and he doesn't talk about it that much. And it's kind of understandable because he says it's absurd. Like, what are you going to say about it? You have this, this prior deficiency or defect that, that comes before anything that you can actually talk about as having being, because once it has being, um, then it has causality and and act and all that. So let's, so, so I think that's a, that is a little bit easier to understand when you put it in a wider frame. so that, you know, one of the things sometimes that you'll, you'll hear, Lonergan uses it in his Latin theology to talk about a definition of sin as a failure to will what God has, law, God's law, right? Um, and, if, and if you think of law primarily as sort of um, prescriptions, right? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Then, then it's a little bit weird um, to, hear, to hear a definition of sin where sin is a Failure to will God's law. Because um, tucked in there, then, even if you think of it in those kind of prescriptive terms, you still have like a, a weird the double negative. Yeah, you have a double negative, right? Yeah. You failed to will what God said not to do. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and so you, need, you can't have to go back and go, okay, what does it mean, what does it mean for God to have legislated something? Um, and in a Thomist context, really what that means is uh, God's creative agency, right? That by God's intellect and God's will, God creates. And so because God's willing is rational, um, it's, a, it's a kind of legislating. It's a setting down of what the order of the cosmos are supposed to be. And uh, in so doing, God wills the existence of all creatures, including free creatures. And so free creatures are engaging in um, deliberative processes trying to figure out what we're going to do in creation. Uh, what, and, and by do here, really the, the image is, what are we going to uh, bring about? What are we going to cause to come to be? Um, and so in the process of moral deliberation, which we talked a little bit about last week, um, to fail to will God's law is to fail to deliberate in such a way that you come to decisions that accord with what God intends to exist in the universe as it unfolds. Um, and so in a way you can think of sin, um, it's sort of in the relational terms, Brian, that you were bringing it about when you first started, yeah. or you can think about it in terms of a failure to sort of hold up your end of uh, free cooperation in the causing of the cosmos. Relative um, to a bunch of different goods of order, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, and so uh, when you fail to will God's law, uh, in that sense, even though we have this kind of juridical imagination about what that means, if you fit it within the sort of broader scheme of how Thomas thinks about divine legislation, really what you're talking about is particip- free participation in the unfolding of the cosmic order, um, which is sort of a, a different bag of cats. Um, just well, even just imaginatively. Even, I mean, even in uh, question 48, I mean, the law is really not the analogy being used when yeah. he's he's invoking uh pain and fault right i mean the 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 whole thing is is premised on an analysis of the good which conceives of the good in terms of the perfection of form and act and so you, and so uh if evil is privation and has a kind of parasitic relationship to the good um it can be analyzed within that that sort of um 
under those twofold aspects of form and act. And so it, it, it's really not about, uh, at least in terms of the way it's used in the, in the prima pars, it's really not about um, a juridical analogy at all. It's a sort of straight m- metaphysical analysis. Um, and that, that, you know, leads to the, to, I, I think the same conclusion that you're, you're gesturing at, which is that, um, you, you can have defects both in terms of form and in terms of act. Um, and, and when you have, um, defects in form, you're going to sort of, you're, there's going to be a kind of, um, metaphysical momentum to that that's going to yield sort of through the mediation of the will um defects in in action in operation and part of what's interesting about that is that those correspond then to the distinctions um that end up getting made uh vis-a-vis liberty right the 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 freedom of specification um both with regards to ends and to means and then the further freedom of exercise right so form act specification form exercise act um and so right and so you can uh you can you can deliberate about and even come to a kind of judgment of value about uh an act that would be good and then decide just not to do it right and that and that's sin um and then and then conversely right you can conceive of something which is defective in its uh in its sort of moral form and then go doing it Um, but but like brian was saying earlier you know you you can you can sort of um you can miss what's really at stake in this distinction um if you if you um if you're carrying around a sort of nest of associations about about pain and about about um faults that uh are going to lead you to 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 really miss uh what the organizing analogy here is i mean the distinction matters because of the analysis of the good yeah right it it follows from an account of what the good is um and so it's not an arbitrary distinction um and it's not and it's not a metaphorical distinction it's a distinction that's drawn from um a, a, a really um a really comprehensive analysis of the good Which might which might be then be a way of of um, pivoting to say uh, you know James Allison's account of original sin or to you know Lonergan's account or any of these other accounts um, walk to 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 see that um, that the way that the, that distinction might be brought forward it might, it may be a direct translation it may be a transposition it may be a completely different uh, set of conceptualities, but if you if you really get that what's at stake is the the sort of uh, the ontology of the good, then you can you can sort of make the the adjustment adjustments in terms of the theological register you're working in um, without having to do um, so much apologizing for the language. Yeah, because oh sorry, oh just because and Brian, that was what was nice about your your presentation is that you at sort of at the beginning of our conversation is you you showed how uh, a set of questions that that approach the question of sin in a very contemporary way about social relations um and interpersonal and intersubjective relations lead you back to the continued relevance of some of these medieval categories um that they can be enriching and refining and and differentiating 
of um, of these these more sort of contemporary social relational ways of hashing out sin um, without having to be uh, a replacement or an alternative that there there can be an integration of them. Yeah, and even uh, whether or not so I I would tend to lean uh, a frankly French continental in uh, framing device for this and relational therefore, but. Uh, it, the, the other primary way that I would think about this is in Lahner's speak, I guess. And so uh, it, it, I have many times gotten into conversations with, say, for example, Eric Mabry. I've been sort of uh, a surprise uh, and where I've been, uh, I've been frustrated with the way that uh, many people I have heard present original sin get themselves into uh, sort of onto theological ways of making God sound very bad very quickly without even intending to. And so I'll, I'll, I'll get a little snippy about the category of original sin or something. And then I'll, I'll start to talk about schedules of probabilities relative to human action and relative to our ability to act attentively, intelligently, reasonably, and responsibly and lovingly. And all of a sudden, I'll start to realize very quickly, oh, crap, I've started talking about original sin <laughs> again, uh, and how our, uh, our, the schedules of probability for me willing the good have been drastically thrown off. And uh, it's interesting, even because so much of uh, Lonergan's scholarship is interested in transposing, uh, which is good, it's necessary to transpose from... Uh, from common sense into theory and from theory into interiority. But if the impetus for transposing is frustration, as is very often the case with me, uh, frustration with the way that certain people are using theoretical terms, uh, that's not actually frustration with the terms themselves and uh, the categories themselves. And so I, especially in conversation with Robin, the discussion of say malum culpe and malum pene and uh, metaphysical evil and different things like that has been really illuminating for me. I, to the degree that I've realized, Oh, I actually impoverish insights discussion of things like this. If I'm, denying the relevance of the theoretical categories multiple people are leaning into their mics so i will uh can you can you run that down robin but the the i mean we we've sort of danced around the 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 discussion of of um basic sin and moral evil but we haven't really uh talked about what what those terms in fact mean um uh, I guess I could do that. Um, sorry, I was actually <laughs> mentally preoccupied with an internal debate I have because stemmed <laughs> by, by what John was saying, where he's you know he's saying like how these like terms are really still like really like relevant or helpful to us, and I I don't know I I'm just not sure how helpful it is actually to think about things in terms of malum culpe and malum pene and and to go back and teach people all of these Thomistic distinctions and, and explanations of act and I don't I just don't know if they're yeah I don't well, know how so, useful, so let me refine my point they actually are right like I mean the interesting thing about I guess I could talk about like what Lonergan says about basic sin and about whatever well my, my point but let me be really clear right that that um 
there isn't there isn't a kind of necessary exigence in the discussion back to these things, um, but but rather that there's a kind of there's a kind of therapeutic exigence, oh. which, which is to say that that um, the sort of moral imagination we bring to the discussions of these things has a kind of constraining effect on um, what we consider live options in terms of our moral theory, yeah. and to experience the um, the both the 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 sort of otherness of the way the medievals thought about it, um, but then also the way in which those categories, right, if we say useful, well, useful for what? Well, right. that, that, that there are still questions that we ask that are questions the medievals also ask, and they oh, yeah. have a different moral imagination than we do and a different theoretical framing. Um, and so that's all I mean, right? It's not, that, it's not that to adequately answer these questions, what we need to do is go back and retrieve the medieval synthesis. We don't <laughs> have to, right? No. Um, but that we might find that uh, experiencing the medie- elements of the medieval synthesis uh, in, its, in its difference from our moral world um, can be freeing for the conversation um, rather than sort of trying to funnel our conversation back into the terms of, of the sort of authoritative Thomas synthesis huh. or something. Right, yes. Which, I mean, you'd actually be surprised how much like ethics I read that that's really the argument. And oh, yeah. I have, no, I have no time for it. But to quickly give a rundown, and this, and this goes back to, so anyways, I did a lot of thinking about um, Lonergan's, stuff, like, you know, he's got, so in Insight, he really talks about kind of three, his three terms, basic sin, moral evil, and physical evil. Um, and before I kind of get a little bit into it, one of the things, uh, and it was all stemmed from kind of a proposed footnote in a draft of, I guess, the Collected Works 8? Oh, I mean, not. Uh, it was in volume 9, so the Redemption, I believe. No, it's Dave Verbo. Oh, oh so I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. It was the, the your, your original paper was for volume 8. So, yeah, it's the. Yeah, volume 8. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, and, and it just kind of said, like, look, like, basic sin is the same as Malum Culpe, and, um, and, uh, I love nitpicky things. And so I got, and there's, you know, and, and Malampene is the same as what Lonergan calls moral evil. And then anyways, and I got thinking, well, is this like, is this true? And kind of flipping back and forth between the two. And so I did like a big comparison where I kind of outlined like, um, four, basically four possibilities, right? Like either the terms match up the way this footnote says they do, right? Basic sin is Malamculpe. Uh, whatever. And the second is, you know, theory was essentially that basic sin represents the prior causal deficiency that Thomas mentions. Moral evil is moral fault. And then physical evil actually comprises both um, evil punishment and basically what um, the evil of natural defect, essentially, is what Lonergan says. So like, you know, just things that go wrong in the natural world. Um, But there's no particular fault involved with them. Third theory, right, is that basics and immoral evil are both elements of malum culpe. Um, and, the, and the fourth theory I kind of floated out is that terms cannot be directly compared between insight and DBI. And in the more recent version of the paper that I have written, um, that I guess you guys haven't heard, D- is DBI that DBI is de verbo they, incarnato. Yes. Yeah, the, the incarnate word in the co- uh, collected works version. Uh, one of Lonergan's, basically something Lonergan wrote when he was teaching teaching to mystic stuff at the Greg um, as part of his uh, teaching career, um, written entirely in Latin because, you know, it was like pre-Vatican II, which is kind of badass. Um, anyways, uh, the fact that it was Latin, not pre-Vatican II, that part's less badass. Um, <laughs> okay. Just want to clarify that. This is not like 
an important clarification. Yeah, I don't know. Vatican II was a terrible idea. Uh, no, I'm not suggesting. And, and the May 4th theory is essentially that terms can't be directly compared. And that's what I've kind of gone with, except I've kind of matured it and basically said, like, there's just such a transposition that Lonergan has done from the, cl- like, the world of Thomas to, I guess, our current world, right? A world of emergent probability and stuff that, um, that you don't end up, you basically end up, um, that you can go back to Malum Culpe, Malum Pene and maybe mine it for stuff. But, but what he's done is explained it in a term that takes into account, like, um, I guess, our, what he's putting out as our current metaphysical world that we live in. So, um, I mean, we're fairly short on time to actually go through his, what he has to say. Oh, I, 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 I mostly wanted you to do that just as a way of, of um, making a set of indications about what, uh, what sort of live options would be for mediating between the medieval context and our own. Um, and the, so the, Lonergan's is sort of one approach you know, Brian mentioned James Allison before. That's right. another approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Lonergan's approach is one that really, I mean, because he's a, he's a Thomist, right? And so it really, he doesn't want to abandon the careful work of distinction and everything that, that Thomas did. But he also sees its inadequacies for, for talking about our current time, which is, which is a project I, I quite like. And like I said, he, he really transposes Malum Culpo and Malum Pene so that in, in basics, and you still have things like it's a failure of free will to choose a morally obligatory course, right? Or to reject a morally reprehensible course of action. So he's made clear those elements that the Thomas makes clear, right? That sins of commission and omission, essentially, right? That, that you can do bad things by like, you know, sin is failure to will God's law. And then you can also do bad things that's like you took a knife and stabbed it into someone's chest. Um, like, He's, you know, he keeps those elements, but maybe in a way I think that that makes more sense to people. So, you know, basic sin then is the root of the irrational, which I love. The categories are, I think, rich enough in sort of surplus of explanatory meaning that there are different angles in. And that's that's, that's what Ryan did a good job highlighting a minute ago is I I actually think a lot of what James Allison is doing is directly complementary. Lonergan is doing, and I, I think the fact that Bob Doran is using both Lonergan and Girard when, uh, in, uh, say, chapter 10 of Trinity in History to, to make sense of uh, the ways we turn away from and deviate from the multiple ways that the good unfolds or ought to unfold in human living is probably indicative of that. But I think examining is so the able to talk so much more frankly effectively about those categories than i am is because you deep dove into the distinctions in a way that i think helps illuminate what's going on in a really helpful way well i uh i'm afraid we're we're running long on time here um hey hey robin can i ask you have treasures old and new prepared for us can i ask we hold those for next week you could yeah or i could do like the world's fastest version. I, I could keep it to like less than four minutes. Do Go it. Forward. All right. So uh, my treasure old um, is Richard of St. Victor's On the Trinity, um, which he wrote in the mid-12th century. 
probably after 1162, but definitely before 1173, because that's when he died. Um, Seems like a good stopping point, probably. I think so, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly positive about that latter date in terms of... Um, but the Victorines kind of had a bit of a resurgence in the last few years because um, a lot of their works were finally translated into English. Turns out if you don't have to like go through the dusty like giant copy of Ming's like Latin works to find stuff, people actually read it. Um, and I just really like it because he ex- it's, it's an understanding of the Trinity based on interpersonal love, right? God is viewed as a community of persons and he conceives as the Holy Spirit as what, um, condolectus, right? The co-loved, um, but in a way that has like real tangible, like a, a person, not just like it's a feeling between kind of the father and the son. So I won't say more about it because we're t- uh, a little short on time, but it's a great, it's a great little work. I mean, they, he lived in, he was a cloistered canon. They were all, um, they lived under the rule of St. Augustine. So there's a lot of influence of Augustine, but also um, some rather neat changes. It's probably less sophisticated for like true Trinitarian theologians out there like Ryan. Um, but I enjoy reading it uh, much more than I enjoy reading St. Augustine's on the Trinity, which I also enjoy, but not as much. Um, you can find it really in two English translations. Ruben Angeliki has one that came out in 2011. Um, and you can also find it in the Victorine Texan translations project that has come out of Breffles. Um, it's an excellent project, like kind of everyone who's everyone in Victorine scholarship has like translated and written introductions. But what's really annoying to me is they've arranged it thematically rather than by Victorine. So if you want to like have all of Richard of St. Victor's works, you have to buy every super expensive volume because like one of them will be in Trinity and Creation and two of them will be in On Love. And I would just really rather like I get all of Hugh's stuff all of Richard's. Then you can skip Adam entirely because who needs him? Jokes. He was fine. Um, all right. My, my new, my treasure new uh, is Yaroslav Pelican's Jesus Through the Centuries. Uh, originally published in um, 1985. Uh, I think the title says it all. It's like, hey, how did people understand Jesus through a whole variety of centuries? Um, the 1985 one is just kind of straight up scholarly work. Uh, ooh, I'm, Ryan I'm is holding, holding it up, up. <laughs> right now. Um, I think it was republished with a new introduction in 1999. But they also published in 1997 a beautiful, uh, Yale University Press did, a beautiful illustrated Jesus through the centuries. So huh. um, much like moi in this uh, grouping, it's a little less scholarly, but it's much more beautiful. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it really helps bring to life a lot of what he says, because when he's talking about the way different cultures, and different times have portrayed Christ, it's people have gone through and found artifacts, found statues, found paintings, triptychs, mosaics, whatever. Um, and, uh, it, it is abridged though. So if you're looking for just like the hard hit and scholarly copy, um, you want the one without pictures. But um, I, it's I, a, I really it's kind of a general it. principle. Yeah, it's, an, it's axiomatic. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It kind of is. But uh, in well, this I want to live in a world where it isn't axiomatic. <sighs> a picture's worth a thousand words, guys. Sarah um, Cookley's the, trying to make it happen. That, that's how you abridge them. Yeah, Cover a thousand exactly. words in one. 
It is about, I'm pretty sure that is the ratio in the, but I, I would recommend the illustrated version of Jesus Through the Centuries as well. It makes a great coffee table book as well, you know, oh. for your non-scholarly relatives. And that's all. Yeah, thanks, Robin. All right, uh, that's our show. Um, as always, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe while you're there. If you want to leave a comment, give us a rating, you know, all that stuff would be good. Um, you know, if you get a chance, share us. If you find one of our back episodes or you really liked this one and you want other people to check it out, spend some time in the car listening to us go on about sin or whatever, um, tweet us out, put us on Facebook, do that thing on Instagram stories where you show what you're listening to. We would like any and all of those. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Systematic Pod, and you can send us an email if you're really offended by our treatment of the medieval synthesis. Uh, systematically or podcast Hallmark or Hallmark films or Evanescence or what have you. Um, systematically podcast at gmail.com. Our music as always is track 14 off of ghost two by nine inch nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor and your creative commons license. And thanks uh, again this week to Brian for doing so much production work for us, uh, making sure stuff gets edited and put up on SoundCloud and all that kind of stuff. So thank you, Brian. I'm happy to do it. And really? thank you. I, I should, one thing I want to say is an, an additional thank you. There have been people who have written us very sweet reviews on, uh, on iTunes. And my, I, I know my mom has been happy to see them. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, that's good. You mean we, your mom we, didn't write them? No, she didn't. Shockingly, uh, I well, tell her to get on that. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I just no. It's we we really appreciate the feedback and all the 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 interpersonal uh, I guess support and clarification for everything that we're doing here. It's cool. So yeah, thanks. And all. if you if you guys want those drinking rules uh, games, uh, you just email the podcast. Or if you're really embarrassed, uh, maybe Brian will put them in the show notes for you. The show I notes are long enough as it is. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks for listening, y'all. And this week. Be intelligent. Bye now.